For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. I know many of you difference makers out there are working yourselves so hard that you are not taking care of yourselves. I know this because I was once one of you, (laughs) and I know that many of you write and tell me what you're doing and um, reach out to me. And so I'm really thrilled that the sponsor of this podcast is BetterHelp, because all of you helpers out there, you need help too. You need help to slow down, process some of the things you're walking through. Many of you are walking through all kinds of traumatic situations. So if you've experienced any kind of trauma or just any relational difficulties, or you just feel stuck, BetterHelp is a great resource that I'm happy to announce to you is giving us 10% off our first months out there. So if you go to www.betterhelp.com slash difference today, you'll get 10% off your first month. I've been working with a therapist there. It's been life-changing. I had done so much healing over the last year. So why don't you give yourself a chance to heal starting this year? 2024 is your chance to dig deep, work through um, whatever has gone on in your life and with a professional. So www.betterhelp.com slash difference. Go there today to get 10% off and give yourself the gift of healing. Today on the podcast, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Julie Faith Parker. Julie has written an incredible book that I have devoured called Eve Isn't Evil, a feminist readings of the Bible to upend our assumptions. Julie is incredible in terms of just she speaks and has studied 11 languages, mostly ancient. Um, She enjoys speaking French and Spanish, but she's also a scholar. She's actually a visiting scholar at Union Theological Seminary and a biblical scholar in residence at Marble Collegiate Church, both in New York City. She was awarded a PhD with distinction in Old Testament Hebrew Bible from Yale University. She holds degrees from Hamilton College, Union Theological Seminary in New York City, where she got her MDiv, and Yale Divinity School. She lived during her studies in Paris while she was studying art history and in Costa Rica studying liberation theology. Her research interests focus on children in the Bible and feminist biblical interpretation, as well as Near Eastern languages and cultures. She's published many articles and written or edited eight books. Her teaching includes her role as professor of biblical studies at schools, including General Theological Seminary there in New York City and Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Ohio, as well as Colby College up in Maine, in addition to teaching at New York Theological Seminary, where her students were incarcerated in Sing Sing Prison. And she writes about that in her book. Very excited to talk to her about that today. Um, She's an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church, and Dr. Parker has worked full-time in both congregational and campus ministry. I'm so thrilled to have her on the show today and for us to get to know her a little bit better together. So welcome to the show, Dr. Julie Faith Parker. Hello, Julie, and a very warm welcome to the A World of Difference podcast today. Thank you so much, Lori. I'm really delighted to be here. 
Yes, I'm delighted because um, I've really enjoyed your book, Eve Isn't Evil, which is an incredible title, by the way. And (laughs) I've really enjoyed reading your words and just um, your thoughtful process of both personal narrative as well as just the the biblical text that you engage with, even just some of the illustrations you have in the and toward the back, especially, and even just leaning us toward curiosity as the book finishes. So I really hope people get their hands on your book. But today we're going to talk a little bit about it, why you wrote it, and um, what you're hoping the world kind of understands from your book. So, um, you know, your recent book, it helps readers understand the biblical world, which was certainly a world um, or many worlds away from the world we live in now. I mean, when we think about the, even when you, it's very clear in the illustrations you include, the world that we're reading about is very different than the world we live in. And so um, I, I think that if some of our Western readers tend to, and I had the same discussion with Dr. Scott McKnight about um, his recent translation of the New Testament. Um, sometimes we read the scriptures here. I'm talking U.S.-based, California, New York, wherever we are. And we think we're reading about our neighbor, Amanda, or whatever. (laughs) But you're helping us understand. um, We need to keep in mind, these are ancient texts, right, in the um, Bible that we're reading about. Help us understand why that's important and what your perspective is on all that. Sure. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the saying, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. I think because the Bible is so familiar to many of us, or it's there certainly many of the stories, even though we don't read the Bible, we know a lot of those stories, we tend to make it more familiar than it actually should be, because it is such a different culture. It was a tribal society. Uh, the world of biblical Israel was age-integrated, for example. You know, today, if you're a modern academic, you can go through decades of your life without a substantial conversation with a child, unless you have children in your family circle. Not so in the biblical world. You know, children and adults were together all of the time. Um, we see this in some of the vocabulary, how different it was. There's no word in the Hebrew Bible for privacy, for example. There's no word for individual, for example. There's no word for religion, because it's just life. There's no word for atheist, not an option, you know? So it's just a different way of thinking. Um, another example is there's no talk about race because the concept of race doesn't exist. It's a much late, I mean, there's lots of discrimination, but usually it's on the basis of where you're from or perhaps class, but something as superficial as skin color is never brought up in the scriptures because this race is a much later economic concept that was created um, by people of European descent to exploit and systematically torture people of African descent. It has nothing to do with the Bible. And so it's also more egalitarian than we tend to think. Um, Carol Myers is a scholar who taught at Duke for many years. And when she was president of the Society of Biblical Literature, she gave a paper with her presidential address, was ancient Israel a patriarchal society? And her answer was basically no, because it was so integrated and men and women were really dependent upon each other. So, and one one other thing, just one other thing to mention, um, we it also comes at the same time. It comes from a fairly through a fairly elitist lens because very few people could read and write in the ancient world. Uh, most people probably never saw a written word in their entire lives and didn't really affect them. So these are all such huge cultural differences that we often forget about when we read the Bible. But I think they're really important, especially this elitist lens, because there are certain power dynamics that are 
ingrained in the text itself, and it helps to be aware of them. Uh, yes, the power dynamics, I feel like, is the conversation to have with American white evangelicals in particular right now. And I feel like sometimes a broken record bringing it up. But it is, you know, from uh, my own background studying sociology, um, it was something that just sort of gave me a lens to see the world in a different way. And then I think for those who have read the Bible in other languages and those languages having primarily, primarily a lens of oppression as opposed to, you know, empire. And there's been a lot of conversation around this, that there's a, um, a different nuance there. So tell us about your work as a Bible scholar. You've learned many different languages. I, let us know what languages you've studied and how they offer you insights on the scripture as well. Well, um, I, you know, like, like you, I love to travel and I love to study languages. I feel like it's such a window onto the world. Um, I've modern languages. I've studied French. I lived in Paris studying art history. I lived in Central America studying liberation theology. So French and Spanish. I also know some German and some modern Hebrew. But it's really ancient languages where I spend more of my time. That, of course, is Hebrew and Greek, Aramaic. I've taught uh, Ugaritic. I've taught Akkadian. I've studied uh, Syriac and or some Latin. So that Bible is a very linguistic field. I've studied 11 languages. That's not uncommon at all. Um, but I tell my students when I teach Hebrew that this is your ticket into the mind of Moses. If you learn Aramaic, this is your ticket into the mind of Jesus. Because you, and, and Hebrew as well, because those were his scriptures. But you really get such a better understanding of how people think and what is important to them through the vocabulary, right? The vocabulary of a, of a culture tells you so much about it. Um, you know, the class, it actually shapes our perception. The classic example, of course, is the Inuit people, and they're what, 50 some odd words for snow, you know, whereas I just see white, white flaky stuff here in Manhattan. It's like, oh, it's snow, you know. <laughs> or, or color is another great example. The more words you have for different colors, the more colors you actually see. And so when we mm-hmm. read the biblical text, if you could do it in original languages, you learn so much about how people were thinking. And also, you're not subject to the vagaries of the translators. I shouldn't say vagaries, I should say decisions. But to translate is always to interpret. And as someone who interprets the Bible for my own work, sometimes it's just amazing to me. Read appalling some of the decisions that have been made, particularly (laughs) regarding women. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I I think that some of the listeners will absolutely relate to that. It could be new for some people listening. Um, But I do remember when I had the realization um, many years ago, back when I was living in Singapore, that um, even though the majority of my colleagues in the mission agency where I work, which was Southern Baptist, would be reading the ESV translation. And that you know, I've, it was one of those, you go to these annual meetings, people have the ESV, so you think, oh, that must be a good translation. So you buy it, you start reading it, and suddenly you realize, wow, right? I mean, you don't realize how you're being inundated with translation. And when I finally realized that this is an unabashedly complementarian translation, I think those are their actual words, right? Um, I switched to the CEB because it just was like, I need something that has some women translators, not just white translators too, but like African-American, Asian-American, Latinos who help translate this, that those interpreters matter because I totally agree. Any of us who speak multiple languages and many of our listeners do understand translators are making choices. So could you share a little bit about your 
how these cross-cultural experiences you've had both in travel and just being abroad, studying abroad, um, and how, you know, they're relevant to these different books in the Bible. Sure. So I share a couple of stories in the book. It's a combination of academic knowledge and some very personal stories. And so I share some stories about times when I was abroad, because as you know, when you get out of your comfort zone, you're really on the growth edge. And so if you put yourself in a foreign culture, especially where they speak another language, you really, you're going to be changed in some sort of way. And I, 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 my hope is that more Americans will learn more languages. You know, it's very easy to travel as an American and just speak English. And I think there's a real loss because you don't get to know people in the same kind of way. And um, so I, I, like you, have put myself in these situations where I really had to uh, make my way, feeling like the foreigner. And that's very educational as well, because I was. But um, some of these experiences I, I share in the book on Psalms called Guns and Psalms. I talk about how the Psalms really speak to all of our emotions, unabashedly, unafraid. and one of the emotions that they speak about is fear and how I was in Nicaragua. I was uh, in a town called Esteli and I was going north to a small town called Condega. And the only way to get from one place to another then was to hitchhike. Now I need to add, I'm not a hitchhiker. This is not something I do in my real life, but it was the only way to get from one place to another. So here I was, this 20 something woman by myself in a foreign country with a war going on. Oh yes. Let me throw that in. The yeah. war was going on. And so, but I was, you know, I was convinced I, I needed to get to this town to help out with this woman's construction team building a school. And so I hitchhiked and I was waiting for a couple hours in the hot tropical sun because everybody was, there was a mile along the stretch of mile stretch along the Pan American Highway. And there were, you know, does scores of people lined up there. And finally, this military truck pulled over and allowed a number of people. The, there were some soldiers nearby. They got on and a number of us civilians got on as well. And we're driving along the Pan American Highway. And all of a sudden, I realized, gosh, maybe it wasn't such a great idea to get on this military truck with armed personnel as we're going through this enemy territory. <laughs> And then it got really tense because the soldiers put on their guns and the truck slowed down and they started shooting. And this whole time, Lori, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of, of course, my Old Testament class because I'm remembering my professor, Dr. Phyllis Tribble, from whom I learned at Union Theological Seminary. And she was talking about Psalm 121. And she said, people think of this Psalm. I lift mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. She said, no, that's animism, looking to the hills for help, like the nature as a soul. She said, that's not it. It's really, I lift my eyes to the hills, parentheses, there are enemy soldiers in those hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So while the shooting is going on, I'm thinking to myself, I lift my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Then all of a sudden, I hear one soldier yell, lo tengo, lo tengo. The shooting stops. I see him in the hillside and he pulls something and he's coming back down toward the truck. And I'm sure he is carrying a dead soldier's gun. But it turns out what he has in his hand is an iguana. They were sport hunting for iguana, which Nicaraguans like to eat. But the whole time I thought, I might die. So in retrospect, it's a little funny, but the fear was real. And um, 
it just was a, a real cultural experience, but at the same time, a really insightful biblical experience. Because I was using the Psalms the way people have used the Psalms for millennia, to feel a connection with God, to feel this sense of worship when you're away from a place of worship. And we can all use the Psalms that way. Oh, yeah. The Psalms, like, it's just such a special book all by itself. Um, just take that one part out and it has just, it, to measure the impact would be innumerable on so many so cultures true. and lives throughout the last, you know, thousands of years. And, you know, for me in, in my recent history, although for me, when I think of the Psalms, the first thing I think of is singing the Salmos in Spanish growing up in church in Venezuela, because um, a lot of our worship songs were just direct taken out of the scripture and put to Latino style music. Right. And so mm -hmm. there would be a lot of hip swaying. And there was a woman in front of me often when I was a kid and she was an Amazon woman. And so like, even like my eye level was right at her rear end and her rear would go back and forth swaying to the wow. Psalms. And so I think of like this embodied <laughs> so version great. of like actual dancing <laughs> and like freedom and like, you know, like you mentioned liberation theology. I think a lot of my theology was you know, formed by that, um, as well as the songs we sang about different types of liberation and how captives be, are set free and how oppressive governments or corrupt governments um, can uh, make life hard. And so those were the realities of growing up in Latin America. But in a more recent sense, having walked through um, spiritual abuse and as a, on a staff at a church here in Silicon Valley, it was this, it was being away from the walls of the church, being on the cliffs in Santa Cruz, watching the ocean and reading the Psalms that helped me connect with God and the rescuing help, like the Ezer, right? The kind of God that rescues us when we're desperate for help. It gave me a depth to my understanding of the Psalms that I had had, and it connected me of a history of both um, Christianity and also the history of what it must have meant for the writers of the Psalms to write these things. And it, I think that you mentioned earlier that being an individual, it's not a part of many cultures. It's a very Western-focused concept, but my experience in Indonesia, Singapore, Venezuela growing up was not about being an individual Christian as much as it was being a community. And the Psalms helped me feel to be a part of that community. And so I agree. There's something so deep about the song Psalms. You also have one of my favorite chapters in your book is about teaching um, at Sing Sing Maximum Prison. Um, and you teach you, your chapter has to do with the Song of Psalms and Sing Sing. It's almost like a tongue twister to even say the chapter yeah. title. But, um, you taught, and I, I can only imagine the fear. You kind of walk through that in the book a little bit. Um, prisons really are, though, a different world from what most of us know in our daily lives. So what was it like for you to teach there at Sing Sing Maximum Security Prison? What did you learn and how do these insights form inform your own reading of the Bible? I really loved it, Lori. I, it was, again, it was a very different context from anything I'd known before. I didn't know anyone previously who was incarcerated. I had, I think I'd been to a prison once on a trip with a, a church group, but I really knew so little about it. But I honestly believe that God just put it on my heart um, because I just felt deeply compelled to teach inside a prison. And so after some persistence, I was able to teach, which I really wanted to do. I, I, I was able to teach with New York Theological Seminary. They're located here in Manhattan, but they have a program. They call it their North Campus, Sing Sing Prison. And it's the only master's degree program within New York State. 
And it's a wonderful program. It's a very competitive program. Um, they, I think they had 54 men apply for 13 seats, something like that. So they were really good students, and they all wanted to be there. And uh, the volunteer coordinator, when I was undergoing my training, she said, this is the cream of the prison crop. And I believe that. So in some ways, what I'm sharing is very much from my own limited perspective. Um, I, I know that people have had much harder, much more difficult experiences as chaplains and as corrections officers in prisons. But for me, it was really joyful. It was really joyful. I just loved talking about the scriptures with these men. They did all the reading. You know, they had the time. <laughs> they did all the reading. So they were really excellent students. Um, <laughs> two of them in particular, honestly, if they'd born in, been born into another life, they, they would have been professors, I think. They were so bright. They were such good writers. And actually, I have another book, My So-Called Biblical Life, in which I... Um, published their essays, their class essays. And that was part of my mo motivation for that book, because I wanted to get their names out in the world in a positive way, not just their crimes, or help to do that. They've done, you know, a lot themselves too. But I just, uh, some of the things that I learned were one, I really try not to speak of prisoners. I try to speak of people who've been incarcerated, um, because these men were as I said, they were just born into really difficult situations of poverty and gang-ridden neighborhoods. And if I'm honest with myself, if I'd been born into a neighborhood like that, I know my life would be really different. And if I were in that pipeline of you know, sending men of color to prison, who knows, really, who knows? Um, but another thing that happened through that experience was I really learned to know the Bible better. I just started noticing all the people who commit crimes in the Bible. So we have, you know, we have Cain. Okay, that's Genesis 4. He murders his <laughs> brother. Okay, so we don't have to get very far. And in the same chapter, you have Lamech, who says he murders someone. So that's two murders right away, chapter 4. And But what does God do with Cain? Put a mark on him to protect him. And then we get mm -hmm. to Exodus chapter 2, which verses, I think it's just two verses, 11, 12. But Moses, when after he grows up, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He looks this way and that, kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then flees. So that's murder, a crime of passion, perhaps. But it's he's a murderer, and he's a fugitive. That's Moses. We're in chapter 2 of Exodus. If you take him, you lock him up, throw away the key. The Bible's done, Laurie. Okay? We're only in Exodus yeah. chapter 2. <laughs> that's the right. end of the story. Um, then, and, and then, of course, we have David. So David's name means beloved. He is probably the most beloved character in the Hebrew Bible. He's certainly the character who's named the most. I believe it's over 1,000 times. And he is a premeditated murderer. He breaks half of the Ten Commandments. He takes another man's wife, commits adultery, and then really works hard to have Uriah killed. So he's a premeditated murderer. Then you get to the New Testament. Who are the two most famous people there? Jesus and Paul. Jesus is brought up for the crime of treason, and he's executed as a criminal in the worst possible way through crucifixion. And Paul writes a number of his letters from prison, you know, Philemon of Philippians, uh, you know, of the authentic Pauline letters. He, so these people whom we would see as criminals are heroes of the Bible. Really, the, the superstars, the four top people of the entire Bible are all criminals. And so I think that helps me to maybe be a little less quick to judge folks who are incarcerated uh, because we don't remember Moses, David, Jesus, and Paul for the worst thing that they've ever done. We give them another chance, right?
Yeah, we do. It is interesting um, to hear you say it uh, that way, even after having read what you wrote. And I think about like my father for many years was a chaplain in a a jail in New Mexico, which had had some pretty horrific um, situations uh, where there had been some beheadings of some of the guards. And it was just a a pretty brutal um, kind of prison break uh, years before. Um, And his experience and his stories uh, were just incredible. I mean, I feel like some of the inmates he worked with and, and taught seminary classes to, and also provided whatever religion they had, you know, the paraphernalia from their own religion and would have discussions with them about, you know, their faith, whatever their faith was, whether it was some, you know, Native American, indigenous practices, or, um, you know, some with Nation of Islam, all these different religions. So he always had fascinating stories. But um, especially with his like kind of teaching seminary classes, he had a pretty similar experience. People were well prepared. There were some really intelligent inmates who, um, you know, maybe had been raised in situations where their classical education had not been, um, you know, the same level as had they been raised in a zip code where the property value was higher, for example. But the intelligence and capability of learning and their um, desire to learn very, very high um, in some of these cases. And I was always fascinated and still am when I hear my dad tell those stories because I think we have a lot of stigma um, around people who have been incarcerated. And when you talk about the lens of the scripture through, you know, what you just mentioned, how many people had been incarcerated that are a heroes of the faith, it really does sort of give us a whole different way of approaching it. And um, a whole different conversation to have, and hopefully a lot more compassion on ourselves and on our communities. Um, and also the, the justice system that is part of our, wherever country we live in, you know, how we handle people who commit crimes is a part of our faith journey. Right. It's so true. And God bless your dad. You know, that's such important work that he did. I feel that education is so transformative for all of us. It certainly has transformed my life, and I'm sure yours too but especially for people who are incarcerated because it really it does so much not only not only for a person's sense of their intelligence but also their self esteem someone who worked in the correction system told me that it actually when people become better educated it improves their relationships with the people that they're with whether it's corrections officers or other people with whom they're incarcerated and also with their families, and also it improves their hygiene. That one surprised me. But it's because wow. people's self-esteem improves and their sense of themselves improves. And that's invaluable, especially because most people get released and come back on the outside. We want people who are able to contribute to society, and that's what they want to do too. But we need to help give folks tools. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. Um, and there are some really great people doing some really good work out there. It's pretty, pretty cool to see. I want to shift gears for a second and talk about how, um, you know, Eve is an evil, which is once again, such a great title. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, when we, when you were writing it, you, um, you know, you're, you're looking at different sections of the Bible through a feminist lens. I know that for me personally, feminist theologians have been very helpful. And I, I include, you know, the Mujeristas, the womanist theologians, um, women of color uh, in that, because that extra layer of people's perspective of not just being a woman, but from being different cultures, you know, necessarily from the white male theologians, which is the predominant theologians I read in seminary, at least, and for many years. 
Um, so why did you choose this approach, a feminist lens on the scriptures and how was it helpful in writing this book? Again, I have to tell you, Laura, I really felt called to do it. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit put it on my heart, but also this is how I fell in love with the Bible. I really felt like it was an otherizing story. Honestly, I didn't know that it had that much to do with me until I started reading it through a feminist lens. And that was, again, helped by my professor, Dr. Phyllis Tribble at Union Theological Seminary, who, as you know, is really the, the foremother of feminist biblical interpretation for the Hebrew scriptures. And in her lectures, I would just sit there enraptured and empowered and started to feel like, wait, this story about Eve is not what they've been telling me. What? <laughs> it doesn't mention anything about original sin or the fall. Those words are nowhere in this chapter or this or this whole story. You know, it's not that long a story, Genesis 2 to 3. Like, they're nowhere. But why? why is that all anyone knows about Eve? And the more I began to learn and the more I got the tools to delve deeper into the text, the more exciting I found. And I thought, I just want to share what I've learned, hopefully in a way that people will find accessible, hopefully in a way that people who haven't been to seminary or even don't know anything about the Bible, but are just a little bit curious, will feel like they're brought along for the journey and not left on the side if they haven't had a whole lot of biblical education. Because I, I really knew very little about the Bible, honestly, until I went to seminary. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So I'm hoping this will help people to discover the scriptures as an exciting, liberating, life-giving word. Because that's what feminist interpretation did for me. And that's what I hope this book might do for others as well. I love that. Um, you know, a big proponent of just getting different perspectives on the scriptures because once again you know it's not just one book we call it the bible but there's you know it was written over such a long period of time um people in all these different contexts largely under oppression um and understanding the context of all that matters but even as some of the beauty of this literature is that as we read it today it's still so relevant to the human experience and our own lived experiences today but each of us have such different filters and narratives so i do um i work in tech now in a company where i'm a, a senior manager of leadership and development and i've been doing these leadership seminars um in the uk with our our people there and then in memphis and then recently here in our fremont headquarters and every time I do these uh, kind of workshops, I'm training on communication skills and listen to understand for our leaders. And in my research for that, I um, a guy at Stanford Graduate Business School was saying the filters that we listen through are unique to each of us because of our personalities, our experiences, our cultures, our languages, our families, what we've been through, you know, our lives. And so everybody's filters are unique when we listen and they are as unique. And this floored me as our fingerprint. So literally everyone that listens is listening in a unique way. And I really believe as we read the scriptures, we're all reading it in unique ways. And so to kind of put us in a box of how we read it, it's not helping us. It was not intended for that. So, but you yourself as a mother are reading through the lens of a mother. You're also reading and writing, you know, in a scholarly way about your own family. And you write about, um, you know, through the lens of your children and labels they've had to carry from their own differences. So you write about your son's autism diagnosis, your daughter's struggles with bipolar. How did this impact you and your writing and, and your work as a scholar? Part of it was a response to social media. Because we all put out 
are beautifully curated worlds. I'm barely on social media, but you know, you look at Instagram, you look at Facebook and you see that everything looks so wonderful and people are having such a great time and this family is absolutely perfect and it's just not real life. And so I wanted to, in response to that, I just wanted to share some of my struggles and some of my family's struggles. And you're, and we talk about a, a world of difference. There are some people, we're all different, right? Like our filters are unique. As you just said, our fingerprints are unique. We're all different. But some people have labels that they, that are put upon them and that you live with because it's your ticket to services and it's how you hopefully can get some help. But that's not easy. You know, we found out that my son was, um, he had, a, he had this diagnosis at the time they called it Asperger's syndrome. Now we call it being on the spectrum, but he got this diagnosis when he was five years old because he just didn't have much interest in other children. And that's a tough number for a parent to be told your child's autistic. Um, and, and I just had no idea what his future was going to be like. And uh, we were able to get him services through the school a little bit on our own. You know, I, I did some things for him. I wish I had done more now. You know, it's so hard. You always think, oh, you know, you can always do more, right? But, um, yep. but he's, yeah, you can always do more. That's really hard on moms, <laughs> especially like, uh, you know, oh, there's yeah. so much you can do. But, in, but now he's doing really well. I want to tell you, Lori, he's like a success story. He lives in Brooklyn, shares a, an apartment with my nephew. He works for J.P. Morgan Chase, pays all his own bills. He's doing great, you know. Um, and so it's, you know, you can get to the other side of it. I don't talk about that part in the book, um, but, but, it, but it's there. And, and when we share these struggles, we feel less alone. My daughter is, uh, she's developed this show called Bipolar Badass. She started doing comedy sketches in New York City about her bipolar disorder. And then she developed into a show that she took on the Fringe Festival. She won an Emerging Artist Award. She's performing in Europe. And her whole goal is to take away some of the stigma about having bipolar disorder. Because people speak about having cancer and then they get flooded with sympathy. You say that you're bipolar and people use it as an excuse expression that's derogatory when they're having a bad day. Oh, I feel so bipolar. Like it's a serious life-threatening chronic condition. And we need to recognize that and but also be grateful that it's treatable and there are things you can do. And so she talks about her medication and um she talks about that in her routine. She talks about that in her show. Uh, and I talk a little bit in the book about how terrifying depression can be. Um, I don't mention this, but I lost a cousin to depression who took his own life. So I get uh, how scary it can be. Yeah. But she's really working hard to combat that. And I think when we talk about it, it helps us all to erase the stigma. It helps us all to find help. And for me, that's one of the great gifts of feminism. It helps us to feel less alone. And I hope that the book might do that in some small way too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that vulnerably. I think that many people listening to this podcast can relate, both um, families who have somebody in their family that's on the autism spectrum, people that um, actually themselves are neurodiverse that listen to the podcast, as well as um, people who suffer from bipolar and the stigma of it as well, as well as some of the complications medically from getting the treatments that you need, which is a whole other kind of conversation as well of marginalization, at least in the United States that often people experience. And um, being a mother of children like that, but also uh, seeing the struggle and hearing you talk about that as well as like the 
you know, hope that you give for what their lives are like now. And I, I'm really grateful to hear that you raise them in such a way as to where their differences could be something that could help them, you know, to make a difference in the lives of others. We will definitely check out Bipolar Badass. So we'll, we'll look for that. That sounds Thank like you. a lot Google of fun. It. Please do. <laughs> yeah, no, Coffin, I'm excited to hear about badass. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, when we think about this book that you've written and, and such a gift, thank you so much for all the hard work you put into it. Um, your interpretation of Eve, you mentioned this earlier, it's so different than what you were told. Um, most of us, when we think about Eve, especially in some of the white evangelical spaces here in the United States, a lot of us do think, or the, the narratives that we've heard um, some preachers, mostly men, say about her, well, she was the first to sin. She led Adam into sin. Um, when you think about Eve now, especially after having written this book, kind of how do you understand her and why? I love her. I, she is one of my favorite Bible characters because she's curious, because she seeks knowledge, because she wants to know the difference between good and evil as she makes her way in the world. That's ethics. I think that's a good thing to go through the world ethically. And all of this blame is put on her when Adam is there the entire time. That's something that often gets left out, uh, not only from our interpretation, but actually from the translation. So Genesis 3, 6 reads, And when she saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. That's the NRSV. I would say her man, because there hasn't like been a marriage thing, but anyway. <laughs> and he ate. Yeah. But, but the words, who was with her, are not in a lot of Bibles. They're not in the Revised Standard Version. They're not in the Jewish Publication Society Tanakh of 1985. They are left out of many translations of the Bible. And that, about a third of English translations, leave that out. I did a lot of research on this and published an article called Blaming Eve Alone. But I was stunned to see that that one small Hebrew word, imach, meaning with her, has been left out of many translations of the Bible. And that makes it very easy to just blame her for the, quote, fall of humanity. Fall again, that word is nowhere in the text. Even though she's not even, she hasn't even been formed yet in chapter two, when God says to Adam, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. She hasn't even been formed, and yet she takes the blame. She takes the fall for him. And at least she thinks about it. At least she has these reasons, a number of reasons why she's going to eat. And he just like eats right away. Doesn't say, if he'd been a helper, Azer, as you mentioned before, that word means helper in the Hebrew Bible. She's formed as a helper. But 90% of the time that we read it in the Bible refers to God, like Psalm 121, which we mentioned earlier. I live by nice and hills to myself, my Azer, my helper. And so if he'd been more of a helper himself, he might have said, wait a minute, don't eat from that fruit of the tree. <laughs> but he doesn't. He eats. And then all of this is a, a couple of things I want to point out that most people aren't aware of. All three of the characters are punished, right? So the snake is punished. Here we have a series of etiologies or stories of origins that explain observable phenomena. And so why does snakes, like imagine a child in the intro. Mommy, why does snakes slither? It's such a funny way to move. Most animals don't move like that. Let me tell you, my child, long ago and far away, there was this talking snake, but it disobeyed God. And so in the end, it had to slither, right? That's the punishment with the snake. And also the other punishment of the snake is that there's going to be enmity or hatred between the woman and the snake. And a lot of people have really irrational fear of snakes. Even if it's a garter snake that they know isn't going to hurt them, they just freak out, right? So it explains this observable phenomenon. 
The woman is punished with pain in childbirth. The word for pain is itzavon in Hebrew, and it means labor. The exact same part of the man's punishment, same word, itzavon. He's going to have to labor with the ground, the adam. He's going to have to work with the adama, the human with the humus or the soil, the earthling with the earth. And so she has this punishment of having pain in childbirth. But as I point out, pain in childbirth, which I've experienced, it's temporary. And at the end, you get a baby. You know, so it's, it's <laughs> but, so it's a really great reward for like, you know, a day or so or half a day, maybe two of kind of misery. <laughs> but, but in the end, like you have this baby, it's pretty amazing. But with Adam, his punishment is he has to all the time, he has to toil in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, just to get enough to eat every single day. It doesn't stop after 24 or 48 or, you know, or 12 hours, whatever. And also that, you know, she's told she has a punishment. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be for your husband. I read as an etiology as well. Like why would a woman in the ancient world ever sleep with a man when she knows that she's taking her life in her hands because she could die in childbirth? Without medical care, your chances of dying are pretty good. One in 10, one in 20 maybe. That's like Russian roulette. So why would she ever yeah. sleep with a man? You need to explain it with an etiology. Her desire will be for a husband. And her, her her turning, actually, is teshuch is the word in Hebrew. Her turning will be to her husband. So she will turn herself to him, and he will rule over her. Carol Myers, who I mentioned earlier, she says this is uh, explaining the man's role as penetrator. And, you know, sexually, he's, a, he's dominating in this way. And, um, but it's part of the punishment. And even if you think it's an ideology for patriarchy, it's part of the punishment. It's not God's good creation. These are the difficult things we're stuck dealing with. And then the man has to, he has to uh, labor all the time. He's going to become dust, serpent food, which is what we're told the serpent's going to eat. Um, so his punishment really seems pretty harsh to me. But then what happens at the very end of chapter three? Only the hot Adam is sent out of the Garden of Eden. And I play with a little bit in the book. I'm like, and Eve and God, they stay together. They're both creators. She is the mother of all living. They rejoice in their wise and glorious creation. Whenever you see a mother and daughter laughing together, that's a spark of the divine mother and daughter. Whenever you see two or three women together, gathered in her name, she is there among them. And eventually she decides to take pity on Adam and go out and keep him company. Because in chapter four, she's there and she bears pain. She bears that child. But that happens much later, my understanding. The text never says when she leaves. And so perhaps she is just there with God because that flaming angel, the angel with the flaming sword that guards the way to the tree of life, only the hot Adam has been kicked out of the garden of Eden. Isn't that interesting? It's so different. This is just the Hebrew, Lori. Yeah, no, I love it. Every time I hear people who have studied the Hebrew of the story, I hear more things that were left out of the Sunday school flannel board version for a lot of people listening. Right? You know, can I, can I just share one other thing? It's so true. Yeah. So I was, um, I was, so I, I, re I read the Bible in Hebrew every morning just because I love it so much. And every time it blows my mind, I find new things. So I was reading Genesis 4 not long ago for a presentation I was doing on Cain and Abel. And it says in English, uh, so Eve bears a child and she, she names him, which usually the women do in the Bible. And because Kaniti, because I, because Kaniti et Adonai. So I acquired him. So Kana is origin of Cain. And actually in modern Hebrew, Kana means to shop. Okay. So I acquired him. I acquired him. <laughs> and in English, it reads with the help of the Lord. But in Hebrew, it says, I acquired him with the Lord. I'm like, oh my goodness. She has a child with God. Who's the only other person in scripture who has a child with God? Mary, Mary. the mother of Jesus. And we see them as so opposed. 
because patriarchy likes to put women in two places, the pedestal or the pit, the two most famous women in the Bible, Mary, mother of Jesus, virgin mother, good luck trying to emulate that. And then Eve, who brings down all of humanity. It's like you have these terrible choices, but actually they're so close. They're scriptural sisters because both of them give birth to life in some ways, this incredible life, and both of them have a child with God. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah. I think that that's the beauty of when we can read the Bible through the lens of, you know, a feminist perspective where we're looking for where are we seeing that men and women are equal. And when you look for it, it's everywhere from Genesis one twenty seven onward. Um, it doesn't mean women aren't experiencing oppression or marginalization. And in fact, it looks like Jesus is sort of trying to highlight that a lot of his ministry, you know. But the lens is there and the lens is helpful. And you realize there's parts of the story that haven't been preached from a lot of pulpits you've been sitting in. And therefore, hopefully it makes us curious, which is what you're inviting us into by the time the book finishes. And I really love that. My husband was preparing for a sermon um, uh, last week. Um, he and I sometimes uh, fill in at a pulpit here at an Indonesian church, and he was going to be preaching on the prodigal son. And he wanted to get some, you know, female theologian, their perspectives as he was studying it. And he's like, you know, it's just fascinating. There's not really women in the story, but there's so many stories like that, that people might preach on where the women don't exist. And you, you point out um, in the book of Job, there's very few female characters, but this book is a very rich and deep book um, of the Bible as you read it through a feminist lens. Did you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, you're so right, Lori. We can find this feminist lens. And let's face it, some texts are easier to apply it to than others. And some texts are really difficult in terms of what they say about women. You know, that's just the reality. But how do we interpret it? Power is in the interpretation. And so with the book of Job, 42 chapters, very androcentric, almost all men throughout the, throughout the text. But when we look at it with a feminist lens, there are two approaches. Uh, one is to really focus on the women characters, the few women characters that there are. And in Job 2.9, Job's wife has exactly six words in Hebrew, which in English we read, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. However, the Hebrew says, you are still holding on to your integrity. Bless God and die. What? It's like the exact <laughs> opposite, you know? And, um, and so I explore that in this section, Curious Like Eve, learn more. But why the word barech, meaning as an imperative meaning to bless is translated as curse. I think it's a bias against Job's wife. There are places when you can and probably should translate it as curse, but I don't think this is one of them. And also in English, we read her asking a question, do you still persist in your integrity? Like she's making fun of him, like what's your problem? But in the Hebrew, there's no indicator of an interrogative. There's no interrogative, hey, like this particle at the beginning that makes it a question. There's no interrogative pronoun like who, what, where, when, why. None of that. If you read commentaries, they'll say it's a quote unquote tonal interrogative, like the tone. How do you know the tone is on a page? You know, I really see this as a bias against women to make her look bad. I think she looks, she's really a wonderful, compassionate spouse. That's how I read her. Also, at the end of Job, we have his sisters when he's restored. So, as you know, he has this wonderful life. He loses everything, including his family. We don't know what happens to the wife. She sort of doesn't get mentioned. His 10 children, seven sons, three daughters, loses it all. His friends come to him. They sit silently for a while. 
And the bulk of the book, they're arguing back and forth with him. After they've sat silently with him for seven days, they start telling him all the things that he's done wrong. And then God finally speaks from the whirlwind and God vindicates Job and restores everything. So we also get these women characters at the end of the book. We get his sisters who come to him when he's restored and give him money and eat with him like his brothers do, which is wonderful. Just a small little detail, like they can give him money too. They've got their own independent means. Um, he has three daughters whom he, and the sons don't have names, but the daughters are named Jemima, which means dove, may she know freedom. Keziah, which means cinnamon flower, may she know the subtle sweetness of life. And Karen Hapuch, which any commentary will tell you is a co container for cosmetics. But Karen means horn, and it's also a sign of strength and power. And Hapuch means antimony, which is a, a, a compound that is always mixed with another, like antimonis, not alone. And so maybe he's imparting strength and solidarity to him. And he also gives his daughters an inheritance along with his brothers. That's the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible where girls inherit along with their brothers. You, of course, you have the story of the daughters of Zelophehad had in Numbers 26, but they don't have any brothers. I mean, and so that's why they can inherit. But girls inheriting with their brothers. So I like to say maybe Job has learned, like a budding feminist, you need to look out for those who are more vulnerable. But what is most feminist to me about this book is what happens in the middle. When you have all of these men, Job and his friends talking with each other, Job never questions his own authority. He holds on to the truth of his story. And when his friends start telling him, this is your fault, you've done something wrong, who are you to know the mind of God? It's like women who are told, it's your fault. What were you wearing? How much did you drink? You know, and Job refuses to accept that. He's like, no, I didn't do anything wrong. We, the reader, know why he suffered all of this. Job doesn't know any of it. And he holds on to his integrity. He holds on to the truth of his story. And in the end, he's vindicated for it by God. And to me, that seems like a very feminist takeaway. Yes, it's beautiful. Uh, love your your perspective on it. And it helps me learn even more nuance to it and makes me want to reread it again. I was in the middle of reading Job when I was being spiritually abused by a, a pastor when I was a, a female pastor working sort of underneath him as he was the mega church pastor. And I was uh, one of the camp associate campus pastors. Um, and I was reading Job when it was all going down and I ended up being fired for my own abuse and blamed like, why, did, why were you in a meeting with him? Why did you ask that question? And reading Job just gave me exactly all the things you're saying, you know, when um, Job was being blamed by his own friends, you know, and just to be like, no, that's not what happened. And it was to me, um, as a survivor of abuse, a beautiful book to read. Um, but definitely want to revisit it now in light of all the the feminist lens that you mentioned. And um, there's so much richness in that book when any for anybody who has suffered and been blamed for your own suffering or abuse as well. Well, I just want to say thank you for this conversation today. It's been very insightful, very thoughtful. Thank you for all your scholarship and bringing it into this, both this book and this conversation for um, listeners around the world. I know that Eve, whether my Muslim friends call her Hawa or whether you're a Jewish um, person anywhere in the world, Eve is an important figure for many of our religions and understanding her helps us understand ourselves and how God sees us. And I think it's so important to understand how beloved we are as women and men made in God's image, like it says in Genesis 127, a verse that means so much to Christians, Muslims, and um, Jewish friends around the world listening. 
So I'm going to have you hang out later with our difference makers and ask you another question there um, about your experiences in the world and your perspective on some things. But thank you so much, Julie, for this conversation today. How can people find you and more of your writing? Um, just go to juliefaithparker.com. I've got my speaking, uh, my speaking engagements coming up, free classes online, and ways to get my books. Thank you for asking. And thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's been such a joy to talk with you. I'm so grateful for your ministry of putting such meaningful conversations out there. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. It's nice to get to see you in person finally after having read your book, and I'm excited for people to get a hold of it. We'll put the link in the show notes to your book. Thanks for this conversation today, Julie. Thank you, Lori. Okay, everyone. Julie has blown us away. If you have any inkling or have any remaining thoughts in your head that Eve could possibly be evil, just start this whole podcast all over again and buy her book (laughs) because Eve is not evil. She has hopefully cleared that up for us and also given us a lot of insight into different women in the ancient scriptures that we may have heard sermons preached on in very different ways. But as we dig deep through the lens of women, as women are scholars out there studying 11 languages like this amazing woman, Julie, um, and just really digging into the culture and the exegesis of what was happening culturally in these ancient times around these lives of these women, we start to see some different things. Um, they were always there and yet we're just not pointed out to us. And I, I read pretty extensively around different stories of women in these ancient scriptures written by different theologians. Um, but even in reading this book, there were a lot of things that I hadn't considered before or ways she framed it that were new insights. And I learned quite a few things and I'm, I'm sure you will too. I found it very insightful and refreshing because there is a message that gets sent when we hear Eve is evil that maybe all women are evil and all women are somehow these temptresses and trying to bring a good man down, but that's not the case. And that's not been the case since the beginning, but all of us are image bearers. And that has a lot to say, not just for the story in ancient times, but who we are today and how we view humanity today. And it can make a world of difference to see yourself in this way as a beloved creation of an almighty God who cares about us, men and women, and made us in God's own image. And that we really deserve to see ourselves in this light. So when you read the book, Even and Evil, you kind of start to see some things about yourself and they're really good, good things. And I hope that you can pick that book up and be refreshed in ways that I was because I found it very, very just refreshing to see these insights that she brought out and intriguing. It made me want to learn more, made me want to research more. So I hope that it will for you too. So pick up her book, Eve Isn't Evil. Such a great title. <laughs> also, for all of you out there who are just doing so much good in the world, um, I would love for you to join our Difference Makers community because we go a little bit deeper with Julie there. She has some fun things to say and you get to know her a little bit better, like all of our guests who come on the show. And we go a little bit deeper in our Difference Maker community. Also, it's a place where um, you and I can DM each other or you can answer our poll that's coming up about what you want to see in 2024 and make a difference for uh, what this year is going to look like in the podcast so that people all around the world that listen can be impacted by some of the choices we make on that poll together as, as Difference Makers. So yeah, join us there. Join Julie in a deeper episode. Join any of our um, guests from the last year and all those exclusive episodes will be just down in that 
community for each of you. And you can just binge that for an entire month if you want by, by joining for just one month, or you can stick around for a little bit longer and, and subscribe and get all of our future episodes and all the past ones. Cause it's really kind of hard to get to all of them in just one month, but they're all there. And uh, if you go to www.patreon.com slash a world of difference, you'll be able to join us for as little as five us dollars a month. And I'd love to have you there. So in the meantime, I know that all of you are making such a difference around the world. So as always, keep making a difference wherever you are. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.